House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Anyway, speaking of speaking of the extraordinary, uh, we have got a fascinating guest today. I've been looking so forward to speaking with this guest. We have got Julie. Get this. We've got Linda Godfrey. Now she's an author. Nice. Of, uh, she's written over seventeen books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. And, I don't know how anyone has the time to write that amount of books, let alone have all the um, the kind of the knowledge to put into that. It's just outstanding. Uh, my God, and she covers the whole gambit. I mean, creatures, phenomena, people. And plus, in between writing all these books, she has the time to be frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, such as Monster Quest, Fox News Red Eye, Lost Tapes, Monsters and Mysteries, Sean Hannity's America. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, well, I well, think Linda has, we all need a little bit of it, because she's outstanding. <laughs> where, where do you come up with the energy? Welcome, Linda. Hello, thanks so much for having me. And if you're asking me where I come up with the energy, well, a lot of days I don't. <laughs> but um, it's, I think I just have a, a passion and enthusiasm for all of these subjects. And, uh, you know, it helps keep me going on the days when I'm I'm not quite feeling so great. But um, I wrote, 12 years ago, I wrote two books while undergoing pretty heavy-duty treatment for breast cancer. And I just am coming up on my 12th, cancerversary um, free and broke up with my um, uh, cancer doctor yesterday, which was really nice. They say breakups aren't good, but if, if it's your oncologist, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then it's a good thing. So I always thought, well, if I got through that and could still write, you know, the other days that I have now are usually not so bad. So it's just a, a matter of what you have to compare it to, I guess. Well, congratulations for yesterday, Linda. That's um, a huge milestone, isn't it, 12 years? Thank you, yeah. Yeah, he said, 12 years? I don't think it's coming back. And I'm like, I'll take your word for it, Doc. You know, <laughs> sounds good to me. Cancer-free. Thank God. Uh, again, I, let me amend what Julie just said. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I, I give all the credit to God and to my wonderful um, doctor and surgeons and, and tech people and even the chemist that came up with um, kind of a last-ditch Hail Mary treatment that actually fit my cancer type perfectly and was probably what helped keep it from coming back. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't think I was going to last the year. I didn't tell people that at the time, but that was his initial opinion. So, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> my good, You know, I, I can't imagine, you know, everybody... It gives a different take on it, uh, but what was your take when a doctor sits you down and says, "Listen, Linda, it, you're not going to last out the year." Well, what is that impact on on you personally? My first thought was, "That's what you think." <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of feisty that way, um, you know. And I I just had a real strong faith in God. I still do, and I know that my times are determined by his hand and not by my own, no matter how it looks to us on, on this earth, you know, he sees the other side. And um, I also did, a, I, I just researched the heck out of it 
and I did a lot of um, oh, herbal things and meditations and you know all sorts of alternative treatments that I could manage. And I was very good about my diet and other things. You know, so I, I did everything on the physical end, too. And then, thank goodness, they came out with the um, particular medicine that helps what I had. And I had an extra year of injections of that. And seemed to do the trick. Wow. Now, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'll tell you real quickly. You know, people look at me and they, they think, well, does this have anything to do with, like, what you're researching? And... I can tell you a kind of a funny story that it's not too long. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the man bat. It's very similar to bat squatch, which is you know one of the best one of the best two names for cryptids that I've ever heard of. Well, um, I had a call from a man on the western side of Wisconsin who said he had seen this. It looked like a giant bat with a wing spread as wider, wider than his pickup truck, and this large man-sized furry creature. Inside of it, it almost hit his pickup truck. Him and his son were in it. And just before they thought it was going to smash their windshield, it went screaming up into the sky, just took straight, straight, took off straight up, and both of them immediately became very sick. Well, um, it was about that time that I had put off for way too long my annual exam, and I'd got, gone in to see the doctor and um, found out that I did indeed have this uh, this kind of stealth tumor growing and it was hiding out behind behind a benign tumor and they showed it to me and on the x-ray I swear the second tumor that was behind the first one looked exactly like a classic UFO dish that's exactly how it was um, configured and my doctor said you know he said this, this uh, form that you have is so fast growing that I, I think it was three weeks ago, he said three, three weeks ago or something like that, it didn't exist. If you hadn't come in exactly when you did, it wouldn't have been there yet and we would have missed it. So um, the, And the final kicker was that I'm thinking in my mind, hmm, that many weeks ago, where was I? And I realized that was the weekend I was doing the field research on the man bat, um, really only a few days after it had been there. And we were going to all the sites and spending, I'm with the witness, we were out literally in the field where he saw, they saw it come from and looking at um, remains of a deer that were there, you know, putting myself in all these places that might have, you know, according to some theory that I think bears a, holds a lot of water, um, some sort of different electromagnetic field or charge as a result of these kind of netherworld entities, you know, where they show up. And it, many, many... Um, People in this field do seem to die prematurely of cancer and other strange uh, diseases. So, you know, I, I don't say that, yeah, that's what caused it, but I do say, hmm, it seems mighty suspicious. You know, it, it does, and there's a lot of theories with that that, that we'll get into here in, in a few moments. Um, but you say that, you know, when you were given the news that, that you had cancer, it kind of opened up time to begin your writing. But what you what what got you interested in cryptos, you know, cryptids or cryptozoology to begin with? Well, um, it was being a newspaper reporter, and and actually, by the time I had the cancer, um, that was that was two thousand. Um, gosh, what would that have been? 
Well, anyway, I, I had already written several books. I had written The Beast of Bray Road, my first book, The Poison Widow, A True Story of Sins, Strychnine, and Murder, and um, the Weird Wisconsin and Weird Michigan books, and I was working on um, the, the follow-up books to those particular ones, and um, Hunting the American Werewolf. So I think I was like five or six books into the book phase of it. But it started um, back in 1991-92 when I was a new reporter for the Walworth County newspaper in southern, here in southern Wisconsin. And um, it just happened to fall to me to write the story about this creature that people out on Bray Road, which is a maybe three to four mile long country road just outside of Elkhorn, my hometown, and they were saying that they had seen this thing that looked like a werewolf because it was wolf-headed, had tall ears on top of its head, a long snout, um, a tail, furry, flowing hair, all of those things, but it ran and walked easily on its hind legs and would chase cars on its hind legs and jump out of cornfields or be walking across the road. And not only that, I discovered that our county animal control officer had been receiving reports on it. And that's what first, because at first I thought it was ridiculous and I laughed. And then I thought, well, if you're going to, you know, perpetrate a hoax on the public, do you really go call a public official and give them all your contact information so they can come back and find you and charge you with fraud or whatever they want to? So that made me think they were, they were probably seeing something. I didn't know what. And when I went to interview them, um, you know, there were a select number that agreed to be interviewed for the paper, um, they, I realized they weren't, you know, just one type of person. There were men, women, older, young, farmers, blue-collar, white-collar. It, it was a diverse mix of people that I couldn't imagine them all getting together and plotting, you know, to rent some cheesy werewolf suit and jump out in the road at people. <laughs> it, you know, it just so I, so I wrote it up just really with the facts as they described them. Um, and I know my editor and I thought it would amuse local people for a little while and then go away. And then, lo and behold, two weeks later, it had gone not only national but international. And we had TV crews from um, not just the local Madison, Milwaukee stations, but also Inside Edition came out and um, an early in search of sci-fi in search of show, mm -hmm. um, things like that. I, I was on, that. yeah, I, I was on radio shows um, just, you know, all over the country. I, there was a period of about two weeks where I, I just couldn't even take a bath, you know. It was, uh, without the phone ringing, it was just crazy. And then we were getting busloads of tourists from Chicago coming up and, and the local merchants were doing things like the bars had a silver bullet special. The newspaper was putting out T-shirts. Um, the bakery was putting out werewolf cookies. And, you know, I'm just looking at all of this and thinking, oh, my, my goodness, you know, it, it's, it's a phenomenon. And I realized that even if it turned out to be nothing or a hoax or something like that, at the very least, I was witnessing the beginning of a legend. I, I could see that. You know, I knew people would be talking about this around campfires for a long time. And I felt like uh, I w was sort of, uh, oh, it, that I was beholden to become what I called the keeper of the lore. So people were sending me 
um, all kinds of reports during the next 10 years during which I worked for the newspaper doing all kinds of other stories, you know, all the mundane, you know, school problems and people features and that kind of thing, and just doing little updates once in a while. And finally, somewhere around 2000, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to write about a book about it, I should do it now because people's interest had never waned. And I was getting more and more inquiries. And I thought, I'll just write one book. It'll answer all the questions, tell how the whole thing went. And I wrote The Beast of Bray Road and uh, had no trouble uh, selling it to a regional publisher. And um, lo and behold, when that came out, it just started things all up again. I got more and more reports. And that necessitated writing um, my second book on it, Hunting the American Werewolf. Which, by the way, um, Monster Quest you mentioned earlier, um, Monster Quest was a really good show, and they have a lot of episodes that are still being watched a lot. And the first season, end of the show finale, was based on that book, um, Hunting the American Werewolf. It's just called The American Werewolf on Monster Quest. Um, but all that got things going again. So then, you know, the book started, every time I would have a book published, um, I would just get more on it. And it's just 26 years later, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so prior to you um, writing kind of your first book about, about this very strange creature, how far back had sightings gone? Well, in that particular area, um, I had them going back to the early 80s, I think 1981. There was another sort of ambiguous sighting in an adjoining county, Jefferson County, which um, wasn't real. It's was probably about a good 40-minute drive to Bray Road from there. So it's not right next to it or anything. But this is one of the most interesting sightings that um, people still ask about. It's called, some people call it the Gadara episode um, because it involved this creature that was seen in 1936 digging in an ancient Native American burial mound on the grounds of a large Catholic institution, which um, was one where they, they cared for people with special needs of different uh, types. And uh, John Kennedy's sister was one of those who was cared, there, cared for there, as a matter of fact. Well, they had a night watchman, a very devout man, a former boxer, kind of a big man. He's walking around doing his midnight rounds on on the grounds itself. He's not driving. He's walking with a big kind of a billy stick flashlight. And he sees this thing digging in one of the mounds. And it looked at him, looked up at him, and he looked at it. It stood up. That's when the man got really kind of excited. And um, before he knew it, the creature turned around and kind of melted into the darkness. Well, the next night, he went to the same burial mound again, and the creature was there once more. And this time it stood up, kind of faced off with him, and uttered something that the man thought sounded like the word Gadara. It was kind of a growly. Now, I always put on my reporter's hat and say, although mm -hmm. those, are, those are the sounds you would hear from a growl, like grrr, you know, kind of like that. But to him, the man, it sounded like Gadara, which is a region in the Holy Lands, where, um, right where Jesus was able to cast the demons out yes. of a man. They entered a, a herd of swine and went into the water. And it, that is the region of 
Gadara, and the man was called a Gadarene because of it. So that really lent an extra kind of spooky uh, resonance to it. And then I had heard rumors that there were exorcisms and things like that. It took me six years to get to talk to the correct nun to, who would tell me about the story. And it turns out that um, somewhere around that time, and this is a very, you know, kind of lonely little country church. The church was across the road from from the uh, institute and still is there. But there was um, a young person who became, um, well, I guess I guess you would call, call it possessed. They believed that he had an evil demon in him, and this church um, had the priest, and I, I think some helper priests too, to perform an exorcism on him. And supposedly it was successful, but then whatever he cast out started following the priest. And the priest actually had to leave the parish and go away to another state for a little time. He eventually came back. Um, but whatever it was, was doing things like, just like in Poltergeist, you know, pulling the blankets down off the, the bed and um, he'd hear words and it was really kind of terrible. And so all of that was tied up into this Gadara Mound 1936 um, sighting by this man who, again, was a very devout Catholic. The only way I knew about it is that his son, uh, who was um, a newspaper editor, one of, one of the nicest, again, very, very devout people that I've ever known, um, very strong Catholic, he called to tell me, when he saw it in the paper, he called to tell me what his father had seen, and there was a drawing that his dad had made, uh, had actually directed his son to make for him while the dad was um, on his deathbed. And it shows kind of a hybrid, it looks sort of like half Bigfoot, and half canine. And really, nobody who sees these creatures reports something like that. It's usually, if they get a good look, they know that it's either a canine, big, uh, like upright wolf, or um, a primate, Bigfoot type of thing. So it, it's an interesting um, aspect. So what do you think? I mean, it, we've talked so far about three different types of cryptids. Um, what do you think the beginning origin are? Are these something new, or are these creatures something that has been around since time immemorial, and we're just now discovering them? And if that's true, why are they suddenly choosing now to begin, you know, being seen? Well, if you go back to our earliest known civilizations, you know, and you, we look at their pictographs and their writings and things, you can see creatures like these depicted. Um, you know, on temple walls, on pottery, in jewelry, which tells us they at least, whether or not they were actually having encounters with them, they at least had the concept. Um, the one that always comes first to mind is um, Egypt, of course, where you see, like, Anubis, the jackal-headed dog, which which was, yeah, which was the, um, uh, one of the overseers of, of their underworld. And I have people report um, jet black, smooth-furred, upright canines with very, very tall, pointy ears, you know, that say remind them almost exactly of Anubis. And there it was being seen. There were other types of, of dog or wolf slash human things, too. You go back to, um, oh, uh, Mesopotamia and, and some of the religions there, some of the earliest writings um the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have this forest 
inhabiting creature named Enkidu, who is um, really more like part human and covered with fur and hair. It's very much, people point to that and think of Bigfoot, you know, an early version of it anyway. Um, and the hair, the huge hair-covered human is um, just an archetype. These things go way back in civilization. So I think it would be wrong to say they're a brand new thing. Um, but perhaps, you know, there are a couple of different possibilities. One is that our population has grown so much that these things used to be able just to hide out and almost never be seen by humans unless they chose to. And now we've been cutting down the forests and building cities and um you know, they're burning down the, the uh, jungles and the Amazon. All of these wonderful habitats are going, and so these things are more exposed. Um, some people think it's because they are coming from another realm, another dimension, and that there are portals, and that this is the time prophesied in, in many religions where the, the veil is growing thin between the worlds, and these things are coming through, and preparing for whatever end time business is going to go on. You know, you think even of uh, the uh, Scandinavians and their Ragnarok, um, mm-hmm. which predicts the, the, the cyclic end, end of one world and, and beginning of another. And then you see them also depicted in um, Southern American um, mystery temples. Um, so uh, they're very old things, whatever they are. And even the Native Americans, um, you know, I've asked whenever I get a chance, I uh, I've ha- have some friends and I've been honored to um, be able to get a re- an interview with a Ho-Chunk um, anthropologist and elder. And what most of them say, and of course, there's, this is by no means one monolithic, completely the same thing, because you will find some other first people that um, have a little different look at it, but most of the ones that I talk to say, these creatures have been here before, people were here, they come from the spirit world, which, you know, you might rename um, another dimension or something like that, and they believe their portals are in fresh springs of water, that they come here, and when they're here, they can be completely corporeal, they make footprints, they have weight, Mm -hmm. they eat, they... um, sleep, they have babies, but they can also be somewhere on a sliding scale between our reality and that other reality, much as the same way sound is on a a sliding scale from dog whistle high down to very low infrasound. Uh, You know, it's, it's that kind of a thing. If you know how the universe is structured, it makes sense. So that explains why sometimes they're seen, you know, as, as, uh, being transparent or, you know, the footsteps um, just stop in the middle of a snowfield, that kind of thing. Um, and this seems to be what most of them agree on. And I have to say, um, you know, taking out all bias, it is the, the plan or the, the, uh, the story that explains best everything that's reported, everything that people have observed about all these types of creatures fit with that scenario better than any other um, explanation that I found. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, in preparation for this interview, I watched a show, uh, theories on, on cryptids and why they're so rarely seen. And they said exactly what you just said, that these beings, 
you know, are possibly interdimensional and they operate at certain frequencies. Kind of like, mm -hmm. why do we see ghosts out of the corner of our eyes rather right. than straight on? Because the eye operates differently. Wavelengths are different. And they said that it's possible that they can manipulate radio waves. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Or that they can somehow um, manipulate the essence of our consciousness. And, you know, it's not the eye which decides what we see. The eye is merely the vehicle that takes in whatever light waves are there. And then the brain interprets them. So, um, you know, and that it's kind of hard to, to get a handle on thinking about that. But to give you an idea, um, somebody did an experiment where for some somehow I, I'm thinking they had the people turned upside down for a great number for a great amount of time, so it looked like everything was upside or, or they they did something so it looked like everything was upside down to them. I think they had some special glasses created that they were wearing, so as they walked around, it looked like everything was upside down, and they found that after a few weeks, everybody's um, sense of where they were completely flipped over and changed so that they again saw that they were going, you know, everything was right side up again. The only thing that changed was their own brainwave in how it interpreted what the eyes were taking in. Oh, that would drive me nuts. But then again, yes. that, that's me after a six-pack of paps. But, <laughs> but you know, uh, you, you, you're making absolute sense. And, and going back to a previous point, I wasn't suggesting that cryptids are anything new, uh, you know, for, from my point of view, because well, let, let's go really cliche here. Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Abominable Snowman. They're, they're all basically the same creature, just different cultures that have experienced them for, you know, millennia. Right. But right. suddenly it seems that, like you suggested, possibly it's due to deforestation. It, you know, suddenly it's like it, it's everywhere. Boom. You know, since the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, of course, my, my favorite, you know, National Enquirer and Weekly World News, you know, you got the Bat Boy and, you know, Sas <laughs> I got Sasquatch's baby. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what, is, what is happening, you know? You know, it's also bolstered by the fact that the known animals are doing the exact same thing. Um, I've been studying um, cougars. Not for, for several years, ever since my husband got stalked by one in our backyard in southeastern Wisconsin. Um, he's very lucky he's alive today. He had to walk backwards across our entire acre of yard, um, yelling and kicking his feet, and it was nighttime with this thing like three feet away from him growling the whole time. And so I've been paying particular attention, and it turns out they're all over the place. And it is being suppressed for some reason. I'm not sure why. But even um, the, to the amount that they and the extent that they will admit it, you're finding articles in mainstream magazines like National Ge Geographic and the Smithsonian telling about the, the eastward movement of the mountain lion that used to be considered. We, everybody thought we had confined it to the western states. And it's being found. Um, there was one they, they managed to follow its its uh, DNA through droppings and things like that. It was one that was out west and made it all the way up in, into Connecticut, the same animal. One that was here in southeastern Wisconsin was um, also 
followed the same way and was determined to be one that was shot in a residential neighborhood in Chicago. So the regular animals, wolves, are coming eastward. Coyotes are coming eastward and um, mating with wolves and creating this kind of unafraid super coyote. So we've got all this stuff happening with the known animals. And remember, these other ones, even if there's something strange or otherworldly about them, when they're here, they... They act like the real. They need food. They follow the same deer paths um, as the others. So I don't think it's surprising. And and they do show up when you map them out. They show up um, heavier. The sightings are heavier in certain known um, travel corridors for all wildlife. These things are there too. And maybe that's why they're found heavily around the Great Lakes. And and then there are sort of um, spurs of migration that go down to. Um, southwestern United States down into Texas. Another one goes southward to Georgia. You've got another one that turns and goes upright to um, New York State and Maine. And, you know, it it makes sense when you map things out like that. And you think if it was just people having airy-fairy moments where they're, um, you know, imagining something or hallucinating something, they'd be all over the place. There wouldn't be any order to them at all. And that's not what you see when you really take time to look at them and map them out. So um, I'm just thinking of the sheer volume of the books that you've um, written to date, Linda, and I'm just thinking about, you know, the, certainly we can hear so much experience, but you must have done so much research. And while we're researching on, on maybe one topic or um experiences that others have have seen or or accounted for we come across other questions and i and i'm sure that those other questions have then kind of pursued to book two book three book four how have you managed to i suppose contain that information and structure it in your books going forward well i've had different ways you know in some books i've structured them geographically and that actually is probably the highest form of interest for readers because everybody wants to know what's in my backyard you know what what should I be looking for so that's one good way Um, another way is by the uh, the animals themselves my American monsters book which is so far I think the best-selling the the publisher tells me um, has them by their own characteristics so I've got three main sections of the book The first is things that fly, and then I've got things that swim, and then things that go by land. And I was actually shocked how many different things I found that were unknown flying creatures, gigantic birds with 20 to 22-foot wingspans by impeccable, um, just impeccable witnesses, you know, that you you can't put down. And when you start looking, you find that there really have been lots of these that um, are just put off as jokes or not important or whatever, but they are there. And some you can explain with zoo animals. Others, you know, you just can't by by any means. Um, my latest book, Monsters Among Us, um, I put in general categories of their different weirdnesses. <laughs> ones, ones that glowed, ones that did this and that. But I also took the structuring a, a step further just as an example because you know, one one book, no matter how thick it is, is not going to be a statistically 
a reliable um, thing. But I thought, well, what if every time we had one of these, when we know the date, when we know um, the geographical location, don't we look into some of the other anomalies that are reported and see what sort of of associations pop up, you know, like light anomalies and that sort of thing. So I did that for whatever um, examples in this book fit those categories. And I went by uh, solar flares and by UFO sightings nearby and by um, phases of the moon and a couple of other, anything else that was weird that stood out. And um, it was surprising. There were far more correspondences between um, things that happened during solar flares than there were during the full moon. The full moon didn't seem to have as much effect as the as the solar flares. And again, it was just a, a kind of a big beginning start. But if this was done with every incident that comes along that um, we're able to document where the the um, particulars are known, you know, perhaps we would start learning more. Is there something that you? Um you identified very early on in your, your career as an author that you've had to wait some years before you were able to present it in a book? Well, um, the first ones came kind of fast and furious because um, people were just sending stuff to me, and, and I wasn't, I was trying to include everything, but I, it was taking me an average of six months to write a book. And now, when I'm getting a little pickier about I want things to fit particular categories, it takes a little longer to pile up, either pile up ones, um, you know, that are just coming to me, because I still am receiving these things, you know, 26 years later. Um, but also, there are ones that don't, that haven't fit into anything. For instance, um, I started right from the beginning getting the occasional report about um some kind of weird canine, and people would say it didn't really look like a dog. It was way bigger than a dog, way bigger than than a wolf. Um, it did not walk on its hind legs, but the head looked primitive. The, the jaws were huge. The head looked too big for the body. Um, you know, it it just had this weirdness about it. And they often were chasing cars or seen along road roadsides. And I thought, well, these really aren't you know man wolves or wolf men. Um, we don't, that we can call them that because they don't have the main characteristic. They don't stand up and run around on their hind legs. So I wasn't knowing what to do with them. And then before Monsters Among Us, and well, after Monsters Among Us, and before this one that's coming out, um, I realized I had a pretty hefty folder full of them that just sort of crept up over the years. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to put these together. And so it's a, it's a very big chapter in my next book that's coming out. And uh, giving me kind of a headache because I've been collecting some of these so long. Um, the people who reported them have changed their email addresses or contact info, and I, I'm still trying to get hold of some of them for their um, signature to sign off on and having them in. I can still do it if I um, paraphrase everything and don't use their names. It's, it's usually okay, but I like to hear from them themselves. So I do have this big stack of um, observations on these giant dogs, and that's kind of a, um, a culmination for me of, of many years, really. Now, what, if you had to go back and look at all of your books, what's the one that you had the most enjoyment in writing, and why? Oh, wow. Um, 
It's hard to say. Uh, I really, I really like Monsters Among Us. Um, that actually, because it's a compendium of the strange sorts of encounters that I also had been sort of filtering out that I realized was my own bias. And I was able to go, and because some of these people really, I, I, to, to feel right about their stories, I needed to interview them in person several times if I could, if I could reach them. And so, you know, I just met some really delightful people, and I was so continually amazed at the associations that were coming out. Um, it, it, it was an enjoyable book to write, and I do think it's my favorite of them. Um, my very first book was kind of a joy. It took me six years just to research, and that was um, True Historic Crime, The Poison Widow. I think it's finally out of print right now. Um, but it, it, that one, True Historic Crime was a pleasure because I got to research in history. I was doing genealogy on these people, finding out really fascinating things that happened. I had like five or 600 pages of court documents with original letters from between the, the perpetrators. And this was the story of, the true story happened in the 1920s of a woman in southeastern Wisconsin who didn't live very, all that far from that, um, Jefferson Institute, by the way, St. Coletta Institute, um, who, she married an older man. She was 17, he was 34, he was a prosperous farmer and school teacher, and they had a lovely family, four, four children, and they decided to rent some rooms in their house out to university students. And she ended up having an affair with one of these students back in the 1920s. This was horribly, horribly risque behavior at that time. And it turned out that um, they, between the two of them, they killed her husband with strychnine and would have gotten away with it, except then she also decided to kill her four children with strychnine. And it just went horribly awry, kind of like almost a Keystone Cops type of thing, and she was discovered. And there were really weird coincidences turning up. For instance, um, the, her da little daughter's uh, neighbor friend had been, uh, her little daughter was asking if the neighbor friend could go along on the ride the night Myrtle decided, planned to kill her children with, with um, strychnine put into bonbons. Oh. And um, this little neighbor girl ended up being my next-door neighbor, in Elkhorn at the time I was was uh, writing the book, and I didn't know that. And here I was next to next to this witness who was there at the time, living right next door. Also, the district attorney uh, the district attorney that cracked the case turned out to be related to my husband. His last name was Godfrey. He started the Godfrey Law Firm in Elkhorn. So <laughs> everywhere I looked, there were these weird coincidences happening, and it it because it was my first book. You know, there's always that kind of unknown, and I just really enjoyed the challenge of it. But yeah, six six years of actual research, you know, sending for for tracts of and contracts and and all that kind of thing. It was it was a pleasure to write. Well, I've got to thank you for something. Um, I have never made the connection between the ancient gods, the Egyptian gods, and cryptids. I, I have never, ever made that connection. I, I wish I could take credit, but I wasn't the one who actually... I mean, it's been, it's been discussed um, for a while, um, even before you know, the ancient alien TV shows, um, which have, have made kind of a, a big thing about it. Um, I think John Keel, the late, great researcher, was one of those who talked about it, and there have been others, too. 
you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure I could dig up the names in, in a minute. But um, sometimes, sometimes I think they're a little over overstretched, but other times they just fit so right on. But it's when you look at the overall picture of how all these civilizations had things that seemed to be part man, part animal. Why? Why would they think that? Where would they get it? You know, especially those who are, uh, look how geographically distant um, South America is from Egypt, you know, and yet they have a lot of the same things. So that's that's the thing about it that makes it, if it was only a little one-off, you know, one little temple in, in Tibet or something had them, um, it wouldn't seem so startling. But when you realize they all do, and Native Americans, you know, you look at the Hopi Kachinas, um, they're just everywhere. Yes, and the the Coco Pele and uh, right. But the, then it, it, I've got to ask this question. Then you're looking back at let's say the Mothman, and um, I'm going to reference directly the movie with I believe it was Richard Gere, which was a little bit hard to follow until you knew the backstory to it. That whenever this being appeared, it seemed to herald in some type of a disastrous event. Um, could it be the same thing, that these are simply extra-dimensional beings who are trying to communicate with us, and we're just seeing them oddly, or, as you imply, the way that they want to appear, but they're really here to give us information or prophesy or herald events? Well, you know, it very well could be, because um, the man-bat in lacrosse, you know, of course, occurred a couple of years, of uh, decades after the original Mothman, but it too heralded, it was three days before um, a drowning that occurred in downtown La Crosse, the nearest town, where there had been drowning after drowning where university students would just walk down to the river and wade in and drown. There would be no signs of foul play. And one happened just three days after that man bat made his appearance. And, And these went all the way back to the late 1800s. So um, it it could be. I don't know that it happens in every case or that people are apparent. Maybe there are connections being made that nobody really knows how to recognize or interpret. Um, It's hard to say, but um, it does seem like there may be some meaning to these things, yeah. Well, we're up against the clock, Uh, but what's next? What's next for Linda? What do you, I mean, my God, this is such an unexplored field. What's what do you plan to do next? Well, I've been busy with, um, there have been a couple of movie makers. Um, one that just recently came out, The Bray Road Beast um, by Seth Breedlove. I spent some time with them um, filming, and ve- they came out with a very, very nice documentary. There's another one um, that came and visited me here, and I dedicated some time to called uh, Cryptozoologist. And it's myself and four other um, uh, Lauren Coleman and, and several other cryptozoologists are featured. They just kind of follow us around and s- see what we do, which much of the time is quite boring to <laughs> to watch. Um, but so I, I've been spent. And there's another one right now. Um, I'm involved with filming two others. Um, one one in particular that's taking a lot of my time. Um, I don't know. This last book really took a lot out of me. The one that's still coming out forthcoming yet, and so I don't know if I'm going to do another one like that in this way or not. I'm, I'm still thinking about that, but I do have these other projects going, and we'll just we'll just have to see what happens when this other book finally comes out, because it, it's a little 
different than the other ones have been. It's such a huge topic. Uh, like Julie said, I don't know where you get the time to, I mean, to research all of this. Now, you've, you've got a website where, where you list a lot of your works and all of your books. Um, where can listeners find you or where can they get your books? Sure. Um, my books are available, you know, just about any online bookstore. Barnes & Noble carries them. Um, some of the, the bigger um, chain stores do. And if you go to my, my website, is a blog. It's just lindagodfrey.com. No WWs. Just Linda Godfrey, G-O-D-F-R-E-Y, dot com, and there you can find stories that aren't published anywhere else, or that um, are just a little different. Lots of things to read, and then also there's an about page where you can see my book list, as you said, bios, um, you know, some photos, and I'm in the process of, of beefing that up a little bit, I, and I've got a new posting that's going to be coming in the next week too. But if you if you sign up for that, like it, then you'll get. Um, regular notifications when things are coming out and the news about my my new book and that sort of thing will, will be on there so and you can also there's a form that you can fill out either to report something or just you know if you need to ask me something it's there it has my email address too and so it, pretty much everything you need there's even an about um, the the dog man um, frequently asked questions page that you can go to yeah, I was going to ask, um, before we close, I was going to ask, do you take referrals, and, and how many do you get? I mean, everybody has got a Bigfoot story. Everybody <laughs> has seen the Chupacabra. Uh, I've got to throw that in for one specific listener. Um, everybody has seen something. How do you sort through it, and how many do you get? Well, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people have seen things, especially ghosts. I mean, so many people... Um, a very high percentage of households report having seen a ghost or know somebody who did. Very few people, though, report them. They, they don't want to be accused of being crazy. Um, they just feel silly about having seen it. Um, they're in denial, all kinds of reasons. So although there are many, many sightings, there are really not as many reports as there should be. And, um, you know, I still get, you know, from one, one, or, one or more a week, which if you total up over all the weeks in 26 years is a lot. They don't, they're not all equal. You know, some don't contain enough information. Some may just be a question, um, you know, but there, there are plenty of, of really meaty things that um, keep, keep on coming. And now it's not just me either. For a long time, during most of the time I was at that newspaper, very few other people were interested in things that looked like wolves walking upright. And they were calling them, well, snouted Bigfoots or something like that. And some people still think that's what they are, and that's fine. But if you look at the anatomy, they're quite different. So, so I, I don't agree. But um, I, I don't now there's been an explosion in the past three, four, five years where other people are coming out and um, studying the dog man openly. And it's, it's being recognized as something different, something it behaves differently. It not only looks different, it behaves differently than the Bigfoot. But it's um, seen just as, um, not, not quite as often as the Bigfoot. I think the Bigfoot sightings are, are wider spread, but it's, it's definitely seen and reported by people. Wow. Well, Linda, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the House of Mystery. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks to all of your listeners. 
To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>